Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. I am your host, Philip Recheck. In this podcast, I am seeking to share some of the interesting thoughts and ideas of people in my own locale. And in the grandiose style of grandiose introductions, I hope to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. I sat down today with my friend, Doug Hofer, and some of the topics that we discussed were his journey to become a lawyer and some of the trials and tribulations associated with municipal law, including some of the bigger cases that he's been involved with and things he's passionate about in the world of law. We also talked about his faith as, and his religion as a Mormon in this community. And we also discussed his thoughts on First Amendment and free speech, including some more current events in the world of free speech. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with Doug Hofer. I am here with Douglas Hofer. Can I call you Doug? Sure. <laughs> Deputy City Attorney for the City of Eau Claire, friend, and an everyday hero. Doug, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for having me, Phil. Yeah, that's, that's Can I call you Phil? <laughs> Free didn't. Free didn't, but uh, you probably you don't have anything else. so much worse. I, exactly. It uh, goes with the territory. Okay. I'm going to jump right into this to, to get through my initial awkwardness. Doug, I work with children. And there are kids that come into the museum as well. <laughs> Joke. Uh, just and a kidding. darn good one. <laughs> um, I just want to know, I want to start at the beginning. Not, not the, the very, very beginning, but when you were a kid, what were your favorite games or hobbies? Or what, what did you like to do when little Doug was running around? Well, I guess, where did you grow up? And, and, like, and what, did you, what, did, what were you into when you were a kid? I grew up in southern Wisconsin. Okay. I lived in Middleton till I was seven. Okay. And then we moved to Verona, so two suburbs of Madison, and uh, lived in Verona till I graduated high school. When I was a kid, I obsessively loved sports. Baseball, basketball, football, loved to play them, loved to watch them, loved uh, trading cards, loved... Uh, reading magazines, uh, the preview magazines before the NBA, NFL, and MLB season started. Absolutely love sports. A secondary thing I really liked, and this may not surprise you, is I loved TV shows and movies about lawyers, even as a kid. My dad liked watching those. Perry Mason reruns? Oh, all those kind of stuff. People's Court. Uh -huh. um, Matlock. Perry Ma eh, Matlock, maybe not so much, but... <laughs> You know, uh, I remember there was a TV show uh, my dad watched, The Paper Chase, hmm. that you may have seen the movie or heard of the movie, but there was they made a TV show on HBO about law school, and I thought that was really cool. And so I love sports, and if my dream would have been to play professional sports, if I didn't become a professional athlete, I would have wanted to become a lawyer. <laughs> and so... I'm living my secondary dream. Right, right. You got round. You got level two. Uh, yeah. No, it, the NBA didn't happen. Were you the kid in the like? You loved? Did you love the stats part of it, or was it more like you were in the back, you were through shooting hoops, you were sinking the, the game-winning shot? Was that kind of the, the childhood like that you grew up with? Uh, or and what what sports did you actually actually play 
or were you really? I played almost everything growing up. Basketball was always my favorite sport and was the sport I played uh, in high school. Um, but I played baseball growing up. I played football growing up. I wrestled. Um, that's kind of one sport I wish I had stuck with a little bit more because I was shorter and lighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, baseball and wrestling, you know, you sure. can be almost any size or shape. Right. Basketball, if you're not super tall. I, I actually would have pegged you as a basketball player. You know, when I, when I first met you, I was thinking, this guy may have been in the NBA <laughs> somewhere. That guy's like 5'11". Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, <laughs> He probably played some <laughs> played some hoops in his youth. I wonder what college he played at, Division One. But we, I really think, I still think this to this day, and I don't follow sports as close as I did when I was in high school, but the era of basketball that we grew up in, I'm a couple years older than you, but uh, was the best era of basketball. I, I still don't think it's been matched in terms of the personalities that were there. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think the 80s were a great mm-hmm. time for basketball. You know, I, I started watching the NBA the year before Jordan joined the league. You know, and obviously as a Chicago sports fan, being able to watch Michael Jordan evolve into the greatest player of all time was amazing. But I really loved those Celtics and Lakers teams and the, the competition they had. You know, and some of the other, you know, you know, seeing Dr. J at the end of yeah. his career. And it was really cool. I think we were the era that like the NBA slam dunk contest was actually still a cool big deal. Mm-hmm. It was it was you didn't know what to expect, and people were pulling stuff that you couldn't even imagine because it hasn't already it hadn't already been done a thousand times before because it's only been it only been around for a few years or not many years when we started watching. I was a big Dominique Wilkins fan. Uh, in my youth, he was my Dominique Wilkins was, my jam. was great. You know, probably the second best dunker of the '80s. <laughs> He's in the top five. <laughs> I mean, we know who, who number one is, right? Um, you know, Michael Jordan, not only the the best player and best dunker, perhaps the best person. Yeah, the world and, has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that out later. <laughs> um, so at what point did you realize that your dream of becoming a professional athlete wasn't going to happen and you had to shift to phase two? I think middle school, high school. <laughs> I actually had kind of a late growth, growth spurt to get as tall as I am. But I start, you know, when you're 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, when you start high school, you know, the NBA isn't going to happen. And I still really enjoyed playing, but yeah. yeah, the reality, you know, set in. So you, where did you go to college then? I went to college at the University of Phoenix online while I was working. Really? Yes. University of Phoenix was even, I didn't even realize that it was, it was, it was a thing back in the... I, uh, I graduated high school. I worked for a year. Okay. Saved money to, to do missionary work overseas. Okay. Uh, paid, my way, paid my own way to, to do the missionary work. Okay. Came back. Worked some more to save some money. Okay. Uh, went to uh, junior college in Madison, which was all I could afford at that time. MATC? MATC. Uh, got a job. Liked the job. Working in mortgage mortgage lending. Um, and eventually got to a point where I I wanted to go to law school and didn't want to didn't want to quit my job. Did the did did the uh, my bachelor's degree online while I was working. Okay. Um, so you took a few gap years, as they're called now, between oh, high school and going into college. Yep. I think that 
<clears throat> do you think that benefited? It's more and more people are saying that. Well, I, I wasn't, but I kind of jumped right into it. But I, I think males, especially, eighteen-year-old boys are still operating. Well, I guess forty-five-year-old men too are operating on like a third or fourth grade mentality for the most part. Sure. So you stick them right out of high school into it college. Worked, it worked out okay for me. I, you know, I knew I wanted to do missionary work, and I knew um, it was going to be expensive, and I needed to save up to do that. And then I came back, you know, with very little money, yeah. um, and so trying to figure out a way to do it in a way that I could afford, um, you know, kind of led me on the path I okay. was on, and. And then, you know, eventually I got to a point where I'm like, you know, I was, I was okay with the job I had, you know, uh, working in compliance for a, what started out as a small mortgage lending company and eventually went public, um, got very large and then was acquired by Deutsche Bank, okay. the German investment bank. Um, but I just, it wasn't, I wasn't satisfied. And so, um, you know, I... I kind of had a, I kind of had an epiphany, and when I, I had the epiphany, I remember it was like in an April, it was like in April, the month of April, and I said, you know what, I want to go to law school. It was too late to apply at the University of Wisconsin System Schools or mm -hmm. or, or most schools, and I'm like, okay, I want to keep working too, you know, what, what, what is a path that would allow me to do that, and you know, the University of Phoenix Online had an online program okay. that was convenient to do that. And that's the, the path I pursue. Okay. And then you, you got your law degree from... Marquette. Marquette. And were you resident in Milwaukee at that time, or was it a commuting program, or...? I went full-time at Marquette. Uh, we moved to Brookfield, mm -hmm. uh, just outside of Milwaukee. I was married when I started law school with one child. Uh, my wife had a, a second child while we were in law school. Uh, and love Marquette, but the, the area surrounding Marquette isn't an area I would have wanted my rough. wife or children to, to live in, right. so I commuted in from Brookfield. Okay. Uh, and how long did it take you to get the old law degree there? Three years. Is that pretty standard? Yep. When you, uh, I don't even know, like with a law degree, do you have to do, like what is your residency as it may be, or when you like step before you, your last key or capstone type program or how does a law school work and I know like some people intern with judges and things like yep. that is that there's a variety of different uh, educational paths you can take in law school although everybody gets the same degree okay so there isn't a specialization or a major in law school um, but there are certain classes you have to take to graduate, and then you can take a certain amount of electives. Mm -hmm. You can do a certain amount of externships where you get class credit for doing internships outside of uh, outside of the law school. I um, the summer after my first year, I did a judicial internship with the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Was that in, was that in Milwaukee? It's in Waukesha. Okay, there is one in Milwaukee too. That was really cool. Uh, my my judicial internship. I, I got to do research memos and draft judicial opinions for for the the judges on the court of appeals, okay. um, which I I just thought was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You know, being able to see you know that first judicial opinion that I did the first draft of, and to see you know 
big portions of what I wrote end up in the in the judicial opinion that was published. I just thought it was like the greatest thing ever at that time. Yeah. Um, kind of a big deal at that point. For me, it was. <laughs> it was you know, for most people, uh, you know. Now, were the, were the judges, because I'm assuming that whatever program you were into with that, that's like they constantly have people like Doug coming in and yep. doing these. Uh, were the people real supportive of you? Like, are the judges, is it is it personality-based? Some of them are like, oh, those kids, they don't know anything. Or were they trying to better you? Uh, or is it in, more individually? My, my, my internship was with Judge Dan Anderson, and he was... He was very he was very good to me. Um, you know, we'd sit down and talk about the cases. He'd lay out what his expectations were, as far as you know the assignments I was given, and then but then for the most part after that, it was kind of you can work through my law clerk, uh, which was fine. Yeah. You know, I I think he he was helpful and he gave me direction, but he wanted to. But there was definitely some expectations. Don't be too needy here. Sure. Um, which was you know. I, I thought was I thought was just fine. And then, could you look at, let's say, in that same area, you have five people you know from law school who are kind of around, you know them, and they're doing kind of the same thing. There has to be somebody who's just awful, like who's just, oh yeah, sucking it. Like, uh, what are the, like what do the judges do with that? Are they are they real helpful? Or are they like, oh, you know, I guess we'll be dealing with this guy someday. And, and you know, each the summer I did it, um, there were only two interns. Uh, on the on the court of appeals, and both of us were doing just fine. Yeah. <clears throat> um, another internship I did that I think is kind of interesting in law school is your third year of law school in Wisconsin. If you intern at the district attorney's office or the public defender's office, you can try cases before you graduate. Oh wow! And so is that I a universal or just a Marquette program? That uh, I think both Marquette and Wisconsin okay. both have that program. Okay. And I signed up for both clinics, uh, got assigned to the public defender clinic, and so I got to try all kinds of motions and... and in the Milwaukee and, area? Yep, in Milwaukee. And, and you can imagine, yeah. you know, yeah, I lots read, of interesting cases. There's uh, the book Evicted. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've read it. Yeah, so yep. that just, gosh, was that eye-opening yep. to the whole process. Uh, well, I guess since we, both, since we both read it, like, was that the situation when you were there or is it based on what you kind of glimmered from the book you feel like it's gotten a lot worse I do think it's similar to the situation I saw and ironically I mean even in my current job you know property enforcement is a is an important component of my job and I see some of those issues here in Eau Claire on a smaller scale um, not nearly as severe problems here as as were uh, described and evicted in Milwaukee but there's a lot of similarities, and certainly a lot of the the lessons of evicted, um, a, a lot of the stories that are told there are something that I think I've benefited from reading about there and trying to inform the decisions I make in doing my job here. Yeah, it was it was a book that really opened your eyes to the whole both sides of the story. Yep. You, you had I was both sympathetic and outraged by both both ends of the spectrum you know you're like stop doing this to your own life at the same time you're like man these people are getting screwed yes so one of the stories i thought was really interesting and evicted was how often the landlords would go to uh to court to try and evict their tenants 
have the court say no, they can't be evicted, and then have the tenants ask the landlords for a ride back home, and they would. I know. I just found that fascinating. Yeah. I uh, And then the whole, the cyclical nature of it all, and I think that was one of the biggest points of the book, but, you know, these people have liens and judgments on them that they could win the lottery and still be in the hole at the end of the day because of all of the back yep. money that they're... they're tied for life with that sort of stuff so that was rough there there is a limit to what problem citations can solve yeah definitely Whew. so you got to see that firsthand yeah in milwaukee at least i mean yeah. here too but i mean now, now at, what i what i saw mostly were you know criminal actions okay and so you know lots of assault cases a lot of prostitution related cases drug related cases you know a handful of murder cases um you know, and you know, it, it, you definitely saw the uh, sad and ugly side of life uh, working in that office. And I have a lot of respect for people that can do that work mm-hmm. full time on a permanent basis because uh, I think maintaining a high level of compassion and empathy when you're constantly exposed to those kind of things has to be challenging. Right, and then knowing the dude they went to law school who's now starting to be a partner at work is making seven figures on an annual basis in your cities you know working for the public good uh moving on from that so what how did you end up in eau claire as the uh like walk me through that timeline on how you <coughs> graduate magna summa cum laude of, of sorts super magna yeah, I don't know whether they've named anything after me at the law school or not, based on uh, my my record of distinction there. Um, I uh, the last two years of law school, I clerked for a firm in in Waukesha that uh, had various areas of practice. One of the areas it had was municipal law. They represented a handful of communities in in the Waukesha area. And then my third year of law school. I not only clerked at that firm and went to school full-time, I also worked in the public defender's office, and so I got all kinds of courtroom experience. And um, when I graduated, right before graduation, I was applying for jobs everywhere. The The legal market was terrible. Um, is that like 2000? 2010, 2010 is when okay. I graduated law school. You know, the bubble burst yep. in 2008. Yeah. Um, it, was t- it was really challenging. And one of the jobs I applied for uh, said they wanted somebody with exposure to municipal law and courtroom experience. And so my third year law school was really challenging from a time management standpoint, doing both that clerkship and full-time school. Right, and father and, 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 father, and husband. And father and husband and, um, and, you know, working in the public defender's office. But it ended up working out perfectly because... Who else was going to have that level of courtroom experience and exposure to municipal law? Um, and so I got got a job at a firm uh, in Elm Grove, just outside of uh, Milwaukee, that that represented five smaller communities, and uh, got to do a lot of municipal practice there. Um, I'd say about 80, 85 percent of the work I did was municipal law. Um, it was very demanding, you know. A lot of uh, evening uh, city council meetings and municipal court. But it's not 
but you were working for a firm that represented municipalities. Correct. As and opposed to the municipality itself having the attorneys. Right. Okay. Which, when, when, when communities are smaller is not uncommon. Okay. So, you know, you if you're a community with 10,000 people, okay. you don't necessarily need a full-time right. city attorney. Right. But you need a city attorney who you can regularly right. call with questions and and so but I had a it was it was very demanding on time and so it was I'd say most weeks I had three or four evenings a week that I had city council meetings or municipal court and so a lot of long days a lot of long nights I mean there was a community where their uh, their meetings regularly got done after midnight um, wow. and so it was very challenging from a standpoint of wanting to spend the kind of time with my family right. that I wanted and so the Eau Claire opportunity presented itself with a, a more stable schedule Monday through Friday um, and it looked like it was going to be a good fit and it's been a great fit I yeah. couldn't be happier yeah I I often I got to meet Phil Recheck <laughs> and here we which, are today which I think would have been less likely had I stayed in Brookfield I you know, stars I mean, aligning. I if the universe wanted right, it to happen, right, it might have right, happened it, anyway. But. It would have happened. It would have happened. I know it would have. Uh, but I often, we can talk more about Eau Claire here in a little bit, but I can't imagine a better community to raise your family in. You know, I, I grew up in a suburb of the Twin Cities. I'm uh, sorry. No, it was, it was a good, it was a good, uh, but you know, like. Which suburb? Richfield. Uh, oh, sure. But it was. Like, and the community has changed since I've been there. But even now, like, a community where you have, and this is one of the things that's great about the museum, is that you have, you know, the top 1% of income earners, kids playing right alongside of the, you know, people who are on food stamps. Like, it's, it is, in our community, it's small enough that these people, people inter, intermix and intermingle with great regularity. Um, it's a safe community. The schools in the area are right. good. Um, you know, there's lots of outdoor recreation activities. Right. You know, uh, you, you know, you're relatively close proximity to the Twin Cities if you yep. want to, yep. you know, higher end kind of entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, concerts, sporting events, those yep. kind of things. So, no, I, I like it. Speaking of sporting events, so you grew up in Madison, but how is it that you were a lifelong Chicago sports fan? My father grew up in Chicago and was a Chicago sports fan. And so growing up, I watched the White Sox, the Bulls, the Bears. And, you know, Walter Payton, Michael Jordan, eventually Frank Thomas, not a hard sell. Right. So it's it's White Sox, not Cubs? White Sox, not Cubs. Man, you have a tough time picking them, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I... You know, life presents a lot of opportunities to humble yourself. And, um, you know, some of my Chicago sports teams have have created more opportunities for me to humble myself that's, than others. I mean, true. my wife has said more than once, if rooting for Jay Cutler doesn't humble me, nothing will. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's you done know, it. You know... Jim McMahon has liked two of my tweets, by the I, way. I, I think you did mention that to me at one yeah. point. Well, I'm, I'm known to, to do that. How, have, you, have you done all this, to, like an internet search to see how many Jay Cutlers are out there, though? Or not Jay Cutler, but Jim McMahon's, I mean, are, are, are in... Oh, this is the Jim McMahon. Okay. It's his official okay. account. So. And do you remember what, they, uh, what the tweets were? They were both complimentary of Jim McMahon. <laughs> 
Like um, one of them, uh, they, somebody, you know, topic on one of the trending topics was name a professional athlete. If you could go back in time and prevent them from being injured, who would you pick and why? And I said Jim McMahon because I would have liked to have seen how many Super Bowls the Bears could have won with a healthy quarterback in the 80s. Yeah. And he liked that. No, not good. Hey, somebody somebody wishes they could go back in time and prevent me from getting injured over and over again. He, he, was, he was down with that idea. And I think the other one was uh, name your favorite pro and college football, basketball, all sorts of sports players. And I put him as my favorite college football player of all time. Okay. Uh, on the going back in time, preventing him from getting injured, have you thought it would be this, writing up a screenplay on that and sending it off to the folks in Hollywood? Oh, I think that'd be great. That'd be that'd be the winner. I think I think the Bears would have won a, a number of Super Bowls if they could if he would have stayed healthy and they would have maintained their core of players. Yeah. I think they win yeah. Two at least two or three Super Bowls. I mean that I think when they won it in the eighties, that was probably one of the most dominant like there wasn't anybody else even close that year. Them well, and you look at 84, 85, 86, their defense was amazing. Yeah. Um, and in 84, they had so many quarterback injuries. You know, it was all Walter Payton. Yeah. And in 86, same kind of thing. You know, they didn't have a healthy quarterback for the playoffs. Um, and that's it. No matter how good you are everywhere else, right. if you don't have good quarterback play, it's hard to win. Right. That's kind of, kind of the rules of the game. Okay, we're back to you're living in Eau Claire. Just a little bit about some of the stuff I know you're kicking butt, taking names on. By the way, do you always wear a grass skirt for uh, these interviews? <laughs> <laughs> well, like like a true Islander, you know, you never wear anything underneath the grass skirt either. That's uh, that's how you know I'm a true Islander. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, you have. You have, how many times have you been for the Wisconsin Supreme Court? Three times. Three times. And what, out of curiosity, I don't, I don't know if I've, been, you've ever, I've talked to you about this. What's your record in terms of uh, wins and losses at the uh, Wisconsin Supreme well, it's Court? It's funny you mention it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I know I probably have never brought this up. I'm 3-0. and <laughs> And actually, I worked on a, a case that went to the Wisconsin Supreme Court as a law clerk and did most of the research and drafting for it. And... We won that case too, and so I don't count it as one of my sure. wins. But I was part of a winning team. Winning on the team. Did you? You didn't get the ring quite, or did you get the ring for the? Well, I keep it at home <laughs> in, a, when a, you, in, in a small safe with some other valuables. Was it? That's got to be a pretty big deal. It's awesome. And so the first time you did it, which which case was that one? The uh, first case I did it was Village of Elm Grove v. Brefka, which. Uh, closed a, a loophole in Wisconsin's drunk driving law. Okay. Although, it's a drunk driving case. Both of my first two cases in front of the Wisconsin Supreme Court were drunk driving cases where loopholes in Wisconsin's drunk driving laws were closed. But they were both civil procedure cases more than drunk driving cases. Okay. I mean, it was about drunk driving law, but it was about the application of other civil procedure principles that apply to all kinds of different cases. Yeah, bigger ramifications. Yeah, two drunk driving contexts. So it was using rule, civil rules in the drunk driving context to get a result that I wanted. Gotcha. 
were, were you just nervous as could be going into it or like what was your mindset going first in- time I, I was I'm always amped for court even now and for the Supreme Court especially um, but the first time in the Wisconsin Supreme Court I was less than three years out of law school I was so amped up I was going to pour myself a drink of water before the argument started but my hands were shaking so much that I didn't because I didn't want anybody to see it and um my performance was just fine, but I, and I try and use that adrenaline to kind of. You're a Bruce Springsteen sort of approach to. Uh, I, I try to use it as power, you yeah. know, to bring, to, to bring some power and energy into my presentation. But uh, yeah, I was pretty amped up all three times, but especially amped up that first time because. Yeah, uh, yeah, here I am. You know, before I started my oral argument, too, the, the deputy marshal said that justices were talking, and they said, wow, not even three years out of law school, uh, they weren't sure that they had ever seen anybody argue a case in front of the Wisconsin Supreme Court with that little time That's sweet. between graduation when they argued the case, which was cool, Yeah. but also another thing like, wow, this is this really is a big, uh, <laughs> a big deal. Right. And... How many, like in a given year, how many cases does the Supreme, Wisconsin Supreme Court hear? Usually, I think it's somewhere between 50 and 60. Okay. And, you know, very few attorneys get to make these arguments because there are attorneys that do nothing, like attorneys that work for the Department of Justice or the Solicitor General's office who do nothing but argue cases. So they take a certain percentage of them and... You know, there are certain attorneys for the, you know, the state public defender's office that, that take a certain percentage of them. So most attorneys never get to argue one. Okay. And so when I got to argue one, I'm like, well, this is cool. I remember when I argued my second one, I really tried to savor it because I wasn't sure I'd ever get back. Now, was the second one another drunk, was another drunk driving? It was another drunk driving okay. case. Do they, I'm, I'm trying to think about, like, do the people turn over or were they like, oh, we... We might as well not even have to listen. It's it's Hofer talking drunk driving. He's na- he's already got it. He's nailed it. He's, this is his thing. Well, you know, uh, a friend of mine did joke that you know when I got there, uh, my argument was Doug Hofer. You know, like like <laughs> like like Denny Crane on Boston Legal. You know, why should you win, Doug Hofer? That's why. Um, I rest my case. <laughs> a lot of the ju- you know a lot of the justices have been there for all three cases, mm-hmm. and it has been interesting to see different justices, new justices, their approach to the cases. You know, each time, different kinds of questions, different things that interested mm-hmm. them. Ironically, too, on my first case in front of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, right? You know, the other side got to go first because they they lost at the Court of Appeals. They he gets done he. He sits down. I stand up. I get my my outline ready in front of me. I look up and I see this spinning chair. Uh, Justice Ann Walsh Bradley had left uh, left the courtroom, and I said, "Oh, it looks like we're missing someone." And and then Chief Justice Abrahamson said, "Well, that's okay. Go ahead anyway." And um, eventually she came back. I don't, she excused herself for whatever reason. She ended up. You know, we won the case, and Justice Ann Walsh Bradley was the one who ended up writing the decision in the case. And so, you know, one of my colleagues joked, well, the one that listened to you the least ended up writing the decision, you know, saying we should win the case. I like him. He was really brief. He didn't you get know, to the point. 
I didn't need to hear all of it. And I mean, it's all it's all videoed and, right. and they have audio recording, so she could have listened to, to all of it anyway. But you just had a really good summary. She liked your summary. You know, you're nervous enough already, and you look up and you see just yeah. this empty chair spinning. That right. Thanks, lady. <laughs> now, the was it a matter of it was just the right case at the right time, or were these drunk driving? Uh, cases that you brought to the Supreme Court was it did you have an internal motivation you know we live in Wisconsin for God's sake I'm surprised they're like drunk driving no 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 we don't need to do anything with that it's fine it's fine there was an element I mean for for when you say right place at the right time my opportunity to argue them I think to some degree that's true um, you know the first case uh, dealt with when courts can exercise their jurisdiction and so when they're competent to exercise their jurisdiction and I, so i studied everything i could on that subject and i really was kind of along for the ride on that case i i, I filed the motion on the competency issue um, at the the trial court level not knowing whether the court would grant it or not the court dismissed the whole case and then the other side appealed lost at the court of appeals appealed again Wisconsin Supreme Court granted review on the case. And the irony is, because I spent so much time studying this competency issue, uh, when the second case came, uh, somebody somebody filed a motion to vacate one of their prior OWI convictions, a 22-year-old conviction at the time. And I, I, because I had spent so much time studying this issue, I said, well, no, they, the court lacks competency right. to, to grant this motion. And uh, the court granted the motion anyway. And at that point, um, I knew so much about the law. I'm like, well, I'm going to appeal. And, you know, I talked to the Department of Justice, and they said, you know, this particular issue in your case is something we get questions about every week. It's a a statewide problem. It's a loophole in in the law. You know, know, they were very enthusiastic about me pursuing an appeal in the case. And so I not only appealed— I filed a motion to bypass the Court of Appeals and go straight to the Wisconsin Supreme Court so that um, the issue could be resolved Putting statewide. Putting that baby to bed. Yes. And, um, very, you know, I think something like 4% of bypass motions are granted, and, that, and very few are filed because so few are granted. And so it was pretty cool to have it granted, yeah. went straight to the Supreme Court, and, um, again, had another case. Who argued on, against you in that? Uh, like, a local in, in the second case, a local attorney named Diane Lowe. Okay, so the, and representing the individual, the defendant. Okay. Yep. Okay. My first case was an attorney named Andrew Mishloff, who's one of the the top drunk driving defense lawyers in Wisconsin, a very skilled, uh, very skilled litigator, one of the the toughest litigators I've gone against. Let me ask you about that. Uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine is a lawyer, and she uh, she's a prosecutor. It, she said that more often than not, at least for most offenses, public attorneys are actually, public defenders are, do as, just as good of a job as paying the high price people who just do a bunch of time-wasting motions and things to make it seem like they're doing a lot of work. Would mm-hmm. that be, would you agree with that? There's some truth in that. I mean, it, it depends on, you know, which public defender and which... Um, private practice attorney there are some amazing private practice 
defense attorneys and certainly when people have the resources to afford them they can p potentially put more time into cases than public defenders but public defenders are in court all the time right and they know that the prosecutors they know the judges often they're able to get because of their constant interaction with the same prosecutors and same judges they're able to get results that some private practice attorneys can't and do you feel like, in general, you have collegial and good working relationships with all of the public defenders, anybody that, like, or even private people, well, for the my, most part? Are in my role as a municipal attorney, nothing I handle is criminal in nature. Okay. Okay. So I don't have any okay. real interaction with public defenders in my role as a municipal prosecutor. I, it's entirely with the private I defense bar. And some of my best friends in the practice of law are defense attorneys I go up against. Uh, some of the people I like least in this world are also defense attorneys <laughs> I occasionally go up against. Is that the first thing you look at when you're like, oh, I got this new case on the docket, who's defending them? Is that... Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Is. You know, there are some defense attorneys that you know do a thorough job and, and they, they find the holes in the case and are able to negotiate good results for their clients because they do recognize where the holes in the case are. And there's some attorneys that don't do the work, you know, as you said, um, just look to bill their clients and you end up going through motion hearings and trials that they're not overly prepared for. Um, and that's frustrating. Yeah. Is it, is it a little bit like poker? Like do certain def attorneys that you face, like, do they have a tell? <clears throat> like you like figure out what, what they're, something they're weak in area that they're weak in. And I realize you're trying to get at the truth, the, but but you're also 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 have an adversary against you. Uh, is it? Do you f find those or talk amongst you know your team to be like, oh, this person always does a crappy job, dotting their eyes or crossing their T's? You get enough exposure to people, you kind of find out for yourself. But uh, you know, one of the great things about my job is I don't have to pursue cases I don't believe in. Okay. For the for the most part, I don't have to pursue a prosecution if I think um, I can go for the most just, best result I think I I can find. Um, and there's no you know there's no economic or other benefit for me to hammer people unnecessarily or pursue things that I I think don't have merit. Um, but I also get to pursue justice and make sure that people are held accountable when uh, when they break the law. And um, competition is certainly a part of it, and you, and you think strategically and tactically um, about how you can win cases, how you can exploit the weaknesses in, you know, in others. You know, if you know someone's not going to prepare, you know, there are things you can prepare. There are things you can help your witnesses do to prepare and anticipate some of the um, you know, weaknesses the other side are going to try to exploit. But again, at the end of the day, the great thing about my role is it's not a win at all costs. Yeah. I just get to pursue what the most just, fair right. result is. Right. And if I'm litigating something, it's because I believe the person needs to be held accountable. And I believe in the case. Mm -hmm. if, if I don't believe in the case, I don't have to pursue it. Okay. Now, sometimes, you know, cases, you have to pursue weak cases. And when I say weak cases, like the person's clearly guilty, but maybe some sort of process mistake was made like a parking ticket that perhaps wasn't legitimate <laughs> right you know hypothetically speaking you know uh, you know maybe uh 
Maybe the uh, parking ticket was the result of an illegal search or something well, like that. You know, it, you know, perhaps I hadn't filed. Someone hadn't filed all the paperwork <laughs> to have the injunction put on their car that nobody could, you know, with come within a hundred feet. Uh, but I, you know, I'll say this too, though, when um, when I'm working against a smart, ethical attorney in a court case, there's nothing more fun in the world yeah. than than that kind of competition where you're. It's almost like a, a chess match where you're trying to. To think a few moves ahead, and and you're trying to foreclose some some routes they want to take while they're trying to do the same to right. you. Um, There's got to be times where they're like they'll do something like, oh, that was a good move. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Dang. then it followed by not good enough. <laughs> awesome. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Eau Claire itself. You've been here since 2010, 11, 2013, 2013. So even in the last five years, you've seen some like and big changes that are happening in our community. What do you see from a municipal standpoint? I know that there's been really good stuff, and then there's just some of the muck that goes along with some of that good stuff. Sure. Like, either just general crime. I know you're not a criminal prosecutor, but you still see all these stats. You know, it impacts a lot of the work I do. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously... Tons of great development going on in Eau Claire right now. Tons of building, which I think benefits everyone. And that's been great to work on all kinds of development-related projects. You know, my last Supreme Court case was a case involving the Confluence Development, which is one of the largest developments in the history of the city, which has been great. But there are problems, too. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, we've, we've seen an increase in crime, especially related to methamphetamine. And... Yeah. Um, there are so many problems related to meth use, a lot of which ends up coming across my desk. Uh, we've also... Say, sorry, just to interrupt you. Yeah. Would you say that meth is, is that hands down the biggest drug-related problem? Like, is, is, is that the one? Like, in, in our community, meth is the problem? Yes. I mean, I mean more, I, people, more people may be smoking pot or something like that, but it's not an issue like it is for... Marijuana-related crimes are nowhere near the level of okay. meth-related crimes. Now, one thing I will say, too, is we have an alcohol problem in our community, and alcohol-related crimes are a real problem, right. too. I, I think it's hard for me to say which is, which is a bigger contributor um, to crimes. I would say the rise in the level of meth is something that has most associated with the rise in the level of crime in the community. It's scary. But, uh, you know, we've also... You know, we have an aging housing stock in the city of Eau Claire. And so property maintenance-related issues, making sure that housing meets minimum health and safety standards is a challenge and something I spend a lot of time in my job working on. Um, that enforcement piece is really important, not only to making sure that people get to live in safe housing, but by using enforcement as a tool to maintain housing that, that meets minimum health and safety standards, we're actually able to also maintain a, a higher supply of affordable housing. Because once housing gets to a point where it's not meeting minimum health and safety standards, right. it's more likely to, to be torn down, to become vacant, to be uh, replaced with gentrification. Right. Um, and so what ends up happening, if we don't 
regularly pursue enforcement to maintain those standards is we have a lower supply and then demand goes up, price goes up, there's less affordable housing. Yeah. And so I see the work that I do um, on property enforcement as a very important component of maintaining uh, quality of life for uh, the residents of Eau Claire as well. Well, yeah, and then the cost of building right, being what it is right now is so high, it's hard without some sort of program to build affordable low-income housing. Yep, and, uh, and, you know, circling back, we talked about evicted earlier in our conversation. Um, you know, we see some of those problems, and I think uh, the piece that uh, inspections and enforcement play in uh, addressing some of these concerns, particularly in a preventative way, are important uh, as well. Uh, that kind of leads then into, like, raw number-wise, there has been an increase in homelessness in our community. Is that a true statement? I mean, yeah. is that... It's certainly, um, from what I observe and what okay. I hear, I think is a true statement. Okay. And how much do you think, and this is, I'm not, I realize this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but... Like how much of that attribute is attributed to something like available housing versus mental illness uh, or you know, I think alcohol, me mental Mental illness, illness and substance abuse are bigger contributors in my opinion based on what I've observed. And, um, but poverty is a, is, is, a, is a component too. Now how much of the poverty is related to mental health challenges and substance abuse, a significant amount. Um, but another issue, too, that I hear is there's a lot of resources available here. And those resources attract people from other areas and other right. communities. Right. And so, uh, you know, that, there's a challenge, too. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is something, it seems to be becoming a more serious problem in Eau Claire that needs to be addressed. I mean, are there smart people working on this problem? Or is it kind of like, we'll figure this out day by day? There are a lot of smart and dedicated people working on addressing um, the problem. One of the challenges is the people that have the, you know, some of these problems have to want to accept help too. Right. And that's a real challenge. Right. Often, whether we have enough resources is a problem, but whether people will accept and utilize those resources in a practical way is a problem right. too. Sure. Big stuff. I mean... I know, you know, you struggle with that chamomile addiction, and you know how many interventions, how many, how many stays in. The and I, I appreciate <laughs> you coming to the, the uh, last intervention that are the the last uh, group. I, I, it's a twelve step program that you start well, every day. I, the important thing for me was for you to understand how much everyone cared about you, and wanted to see you stop this self destructive path you were and, on. Yeah, I. I Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Got to uh, remember to change my cell phone so you don't have it. Uh, all right. I'm going to jump off the legal stuff for a little bit. You are definitely very much a family man. Uh, for those of ever, for both the people listening out there who follow you on social media, <laughs> at Doug Hofer. Is that, is that your is that your Twitter um, handle? My Twitter handle is at Hofer Douglas. Oh, at Hofer Douglas. So um, apparently there was a Doug Hofer that got... I was too late to tweet. But you know what? But you know, my Gmail account is Douglas Hofer at Gmail. But so I was you, first there. But I'll tell you what, uh, Jim McMahon isn't... Go, that Doug Hofer is not getting any tweets, any likes from him. I it's, doubt it. It's the other one. 
So what do you, you, you're such a good dad in that you have find special time for both of your kids individually and together. Like what are some of the things that you really like doing with the kiddos? I enjoy spending time with my kids more than anything in the world. Yeah. I really do. And, and I look forward to helping them grow into adulthood, but I also dread the time when I'm not going to be able to see them every day. Right. Uh, I love doing all kinds of things with them. I like taking them to do outdoors kind of things, kayaking, hiking. I like going to movies with them, sporting events with them. We used to go to the Children's Museum a lot, but uh, they're kind of... Well, and... They're, they're 9 and 11 now, yeah. and so... And plus we released, released some footage of you on stage <laughs> that you know, you're kind of not welcome. To. Yes, my, my youngest daughter, we, we had a day where one of the things we did was go to the, the Children's Museum, and... Um, there's that great uh, show business yeah stage with props and other things and you have a director's chair and <laughs> she kept trying to choreograph a performance she wanted me to do and then would express exasperation when I wouldn't get it right and <laughs> kept making me do it over and over and over again um, she's a smart girl I can tell you that right now yeah they both have their dad wrapped around their finger <laughs> but fantastic. Uh, neither one of them give me any problems truly uh, it's there's times I'm out in public, and no offense to anyone else, I look at some of the tantrums kids throw, and I'm like, man, thank goodness my kids never do that to me. Yeah. I do want to say, and, I, and if it could make it into the podcast, that would mean a lot to me, that both of my children make fun of me way more than they should. <laughs> but it's a healthy ridicule. And, yeah, and yeah. Ganging up on their father is the, is probably the thing they enjoy doing together well, more than anything. Three women in the house versus one. It's just an odds. They, they, they know how to play the odds. Yes. They're yes. Good. All three of them gang up on Like me. their father, they're good with numbers, good with statistics. Right. So there's three of us and one of him. Maybe we should gang up on him. <laughs> he thinks he's a big shot. Let's show him who runs this place. Yeah. No, the nice thing is they're, they're, they're old enough now to realize how lame their dad is, but not old enough to say it regularly. Right. Right, it's, that's, a, that's a golden age. And when they do, it's kind of in a, a joking way, not a mean-spirited right. way. I, find out, I, f- I found out at the Children's Museum that I really, my humor tops off at about kindergarten, first grade. Like, like b- until that point, like, my humor is just right spot on. And then after that, I start getting the gongs and the, they're pulling out the hooks. Oh, daddy. <laughs> yeah, I, um, with my nieces and nephew, I'd say about... Four is the sweet spot where yeah. Uncle Doug is just the greatest guy yeah. in the world. And then after that, you know, eh, Uncle Doug's okay. I, yeah, I'm, I'm killing in 4K programs. Oh, yes, I'm killing. absolutely. I'm killing in Absolutely. <laughs> they um, are eating out of my hand. All right, so I wanted to not get into two. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But you are uh, part of the Church of Latter-day Saints, correct? Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, the Mormons. And... How big is that community within the Eau Claire area? The Eau Claire congregation has uh, 800 and some members. Most Sundays there's over 200 people that attend services. And where's the church? I don't even know. On Stein Boulevard, just south of uh, Claremont. Um, Do you know where Stein is? You know where that Mayo Clinic is on Claremont? Um, Right across from Sacred Heart. Yeah. So you guys are tucked back in there? Yep. Okay. Can't even picture it. Did you grow up? You grew up a Mormon? Yep. Okay. That kind of gets into... So, I know... Well, I don't know anything, really, but... 
Here's what I think. Here's what. Here's my opinion on you and Here, your religion. Here's my completely uninformed opinion. Right. With lots of stereotypes I yeah. picked up from pop culture. Uh, exactly. I saw South Park, so I know all about it. Um, your mission trips are a big part of. I mean, it is. I don't know if required is the right word, but it, it's encouraged. Highly encouraged mm -hmm. as part of it, and so that was kind of your. Uh, you were kind of driven to that or uh, inspired to that. Where did you go on your mission trip when you were? I, I, I served my mission in Taiwan. Okay. And uh, I started when I was 19 and, and for young men, it's, it's a two year program and you pay your own way. So I spent, you know, growing up, I had jobs from the time I was in third grade and tried to save money uh, to send myself, you know, on a, on a mission and went to Taiwan learned mandarin chinese had okay do you still speak it's pretty rusty okay. i don't get to use it very much in eau claire i mean i was just in taylor's falls last weekend uh you know spending the day with one of my daughters and we went on a boat ride and there were some chinese people on the ride and so i got to eavesdrop and understand what they were saying right but but soon enough, they're going to be taking over everything, so we're all going to have to learn it at some point. You're already a step ahead. Oh, right. Ahead. And, and actually, when I, was, when I was in law school, the most lucrative positions that uh, I was offered were ones that, would you, you know, would you be interested in working in our Chinese office okay. you know, in Shanghai or Beijing? And um, I loved my time in Taiwan, but I really like living here, and I like yeah. being in close proximity to family, so that wasn't of interest to me. But... It certain, if it had been, there certainly would have been a lot of lu very lucrative opportunities for me. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever said I was the smartest person, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Came to pursuing, you know, wealth and... Yeah. And you met April. Where, where did you meet? In your, Madison. In Madison. Um, she was a student at UW-Madison. And We met at church. But you didn't grow up in the same... Did you grow up in the same community? She grew up in Wausau. Okay. Okay. Um, she likes telling people we, we there was a the university had a congregation of young single adults and that's where we met and I was uh, she loves telling people we met because I was her Sunday school teacher and you know they imagine in their mind you know not, that I, there's weird. some like 15 year <laughs> age gap and you know I'm only uh, you know four and a half years older than her so. well that's great that'll jump right into some of the misconceptions people have about Mormonism. <laughs> So, I guess let's start with, what is the preferred, is, is Mormonism the preferred term, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? If the official name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most people refer to us as the Mormon Church, and okay, it doesn't and bother me at all. My wife was working in Salt Lake City this summer, and it took her a long time, because they often will go by, is it LDS? Mm -hmm. Okay, so like everything. Oh, there's a million acronyms. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like she took her for a really long time because LDS was everywhere on everything. Or she was like, what is mean? this? What is this? <laughs> uh, with that, some of the other, within your religion, within, do people don't generally intermarry. I get like, not, Mormons are generally married to Mormons, or is it frequency to have not? Well, there's some of both. Okay. I mean, probably, you know, somewhat similar to other okay. religions. Okay. Okay. But it's not like you must marry more. Like, nope. Okay. Nope. And you know, uh, I can think of all kinds of friends I have where you know, you know, 
one of you know one of the spouses right. is, is a member and one isn't. And I'm assuming that there are degrees of religiosity within the Mormon Church, just like any other religion. Yep. Some people are more devout than others. Okay, and that kind of gets into some of the. I think it can be more challenging to be less devout as a Mormon because um, there are a lot of demands. We don't have a paid clergy. We don't have any paid ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the responsibilities of you know, administering church affairs uh, fall on the members of the congregation. Mm-hmm. You know, and we kind of rotate in different responsibilities. Right. And so actually, um, you know, for a period of time, I was a president of... Uh, you know our local congregation and really had the role as kind of like a, a pastor you know administer all finances and you know uh, met with with members of the congregation on spiritual matters do you guys do you like is is the hierarchy like it goes from you straight to Utah like what or is there are there different is there a regional there, is there there are regional leadership positions too okay and what region are you in, or what? What's the area that this Eau Claire is? Eau Claire is, is in the. Um, they call them stakes. Okay. Um, and we're in the Oakdale, Minnesota stake. So we have okay. a lot of the um, far east suburbs and the eastern part of Minnesota, and then we also have Hudson and River Falls and Menominee and Barron. Okay. Uh, in our area as well. Some of the things. So, so no alcohol, right? Yep. Uh, tobacco. No tobacco. Caffeine. Um, we have a, a health code, and there are certain things that are explicitly prohibited, like okay. alcohol and illegal drugs. But we're also encouraged to um, to make healthy choices with our bodies. That our bodies are gifts from God. Sure. And and, and should be treated with care. Caffeine is not explicitly prohibited. But there's a lot of members of the church that avoid it. Okay. You know, again, not not because it's explicitly prohibited, but to try and um, you know treat their bodies with care. Okay. You know, I I very rarely drink caffeine um, just because I don't think it's healthy for me. But not because I think I'm I'd be breaking a commandment. But depending upon you know which member you talk to, some 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 look at caffeine with a stricter eye than others. Okay. But, you know, we're encouraged to get exercise and rest. And, you know, so as part of, like, that health code, there's a component that's here's what you have to do. And then there's a component of, you know, try to use your best judgment. Right. And I think in that second area is where, you know, people have different opinions on what, okay. you know. And you, the great thing is you try and figure out for yourself what's best. Right. And, you know, there are times where it's like, you know, maybe I, you know, pulling an all-nighter to watch... Uh, you know, right. uh, a marathon of Frasier isn't uh, isn't the best thing for my body. But then your community would be like, but yeah, but it's Frasier. I do love Frasier. It's <laughs> a good show. It's a good show. And that would be the area where the spectrum of religiosity would ebb and flow, or was it? Yeah, that it, can be. Okay. I mean, is alcohol like a strict... Yes. So you, that's you, why you there are, that's I mean, why there are only two hundred Mormons in the state of Wisconsin, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only yeah, in the city of Eau Claire, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it. You know, I've lived in Wisconsin my whole life, and so obviously that's one thing culturally different about the the church community I grew up in versus the yeah. surrounding community, community I grew up. 
the general community I grew up in. Yeah. Well, and it also, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, having lost a father-in-law directly to alcoholism and my both, own father. Both my grandfathers were alcoholics. Right. So, like, it's everywhere, and it is, it is a major problem, and it's one of those things. Addiction is one of the things that my wife and I worry about with our own kids mm-hmm. more than anything, probably. Um, but it, it really is one of the things that I think about the religion that is most admirable um, from regard, regardless of anything we're doing to religion itself but right. the the fact that our society needs more sober people and more uh, somebody's got to be the designated driver right you're also we're, we're serving as the person writing the alcohol permits for the city at one point or something my colleagues thought was <laughs> kind of ironic you know uh I was uh, the head of our uh, license review committee, which reviews alcohol license applications. So let's have the, probably the only person on staff that doesn't drink at all. And you never got the like rebuttal to anybody like, what are you drunk? Are you sick? (laughs) (laughs) Not happening. No. No. This actually was, was a topic I was thinking like, oh, that'd be interesting to ask him about. So current just alcohol law, right, is... uh, Wisconsin's probably more permissive than most states, is on the more permissive end of all the states. Yep. Would, would, We're on one end of the, the spectrum, and your wife could probably tell you Utah's on the other end of the spectrum. Right, right. Where it's, it's challenging sometimes to even know where and when you can buy alcohol. Yep. And with that said, like, what are your thoughts on drunk driving laws? In 10 years, we'll have, there'll be automated cars on the street. Like, how do you think that that aspect of technology will it change... Um, let's say you're fully automated cars. Like, what can you, you know, I mean, these are, these are technology things that is basically like almost an Uber, but it's your own car. That would be great. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the drunk driving work I do is because every year in Wisconsin, somewhere between a third and a half of traffic fatalities involve somebody that has over the legal limit of alcohol in their system. And so there are hundreds of people that die every year. Right because of drunk driving and just in our state alone and so if technology can get to a point where okay if somebody's drunk but they can still get home safely because they don't have to drive right you know one of the one of the things i see a lot in my own case law is i don't you know i see a lot of drunk drivers around the legal limit where people think i'm probably safe to drive yeah and i see a lot way way over the legal limit where you know, in between, people know I, I can't drive, but then they drink to the point where they don't have the ability to make good choices. Right. And so that's I see a lot of that too. And um, you know, one thing that automated cars would would do is help protect those people. Right. You know, both ends of the spectrum: the people that think I'm probably okay, and the people who I am so drunk I have no ability to make any good choices. Right. right. And even most there aren't massive like uh, checkpoints anywhere like they don't Wisconsin doesn't have checkpoints okay so with that said people get pulled over because they're swerving around making bad just like running red lights so if you have a car that doesn't do that even if the person inside is blacked out then yeah I'm really I'm really excited about technology you think about all the families all all the heartaches that occur from loss of life and we're all probably one degree of separation from knowing somebody that has yep. died and, you know, it's... And, you know, I've also seen, you know, uh, people who have been 
hurt or killed by drunk driving. And I've seen people who, because they, you know, they have an addiction, end up ruining their lives because they, they, they don't have the ability to stop drinking. Right. And then they continue driving, and then they, you know, those convictions pull, you know, pile up, and they end up going, you know, spending extended periods of time in jail or prison. Right. And that's a tragedy, too. Right. Well, and you think about that. So automated cars might... I, I, that won't help necessarily the addiction part of it, but at least it will help the, the injuries, the drunk driving. Some and, of the consequences exactly, of Exactly, keeping people Absolutely. out of, out of uh, some of the legal proceedings that would follow with that. Sure. So another topic that I am uh, interested in from a legal standpoint that I know you are, too, because... As uh, we're all aware, as everyone who's listening is aware, you have a recent publication on uh, your your views on First Amendment in Wisconsin Wisconsin Lawyer Magazine. Yeah, of course, Wisconsin Lawyer. Which is a a magazine sent to every lawyer in Wisconsin free. So I'm expecting big time residuals from my. (laughs) I'll actually I'll I'll put a link to this uh, once this podcast gets up there. But one of the things that you you brought up some great cases in there, some recent cases, Mm -hmm. Supreme Court cases regarding First Amendment. First of all, in terms of your just general view on freedom of speech, um, you know, just I'm 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 for it. You want (laughs) we should we should continue with that one. I'm. I'm pro First Amendment. Okay. And this is part of my, like... And I think generally the best solution to the problem of bad speech is more speech. Right. Right. Let's get these bad ideas out in public so everybody can make fun of those bad ideas. Yep. Instead of trying to censor all the stupid ideas that people have, let's share good ideas that demonstrate how stupid those ideas are. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Or challenge them in the public domain. Absolutely. My wife is a university professor, so... I see some of the universities uh, as one of those places where free speech is sometimes under attack or is often, has recently been... It's a st- strange trend we're seeing where, where universities across the country were seeing speakers shouted down yeah. for having unpopular opinions, and I think that's terrible. So actually, let's, let's add, and people will often say, oh, that's hate speech, that's hate speech. Just say a little bit about the difference between free speech versus hate speech, or you know what what uh, I know that you talked about this in your article, in your paper, but just defining what is acceptable free speech versus what is not acceptable free speech. Just well, you know, my article talks about how government can regulate speech, and you know whether or not some you know a form of expression constitutes speech as part of the analysis, and whether or not that speech is protected speech and not all kinds of speech are protected speech you know obscenity um, hey, stop you obscenity that is different than prof- straight up profanity or vulgarity right like there's yep. a there's another layer to obscenity yeah that is no. not just me s- dropping an f-bomb uh in a public sphere right? yeah yeah e- exactly i mean not the degree that it has to reach to the point where the government can regulate it is a high bar. Okay. Um, but having said that, I mean, even profanity is something the government, you know, can prohibit it in certain contexts. You're not allowed to run outside and shout the F word, you know, at the moon in a way that disturbs or is likely to disturb your neighbors. Off the moon. Right. <laughs> and the other one that I really like is the fighting words. Yes. Them are fighting words, which is one that 
has never been enforced, right? Is like, or has never has never stood up to Supreme Court challenge. Isn't there? There's something interesting about that that I had heard. It was like a 1940s law or ruling that does. It's really it's really hard because if you say they're fighting words, you're basically who gets to decide that those are fighting words and. You know, the Doug Hofer with the Eau Claire <laughs> City Attorney's <laughs> Office. Have you? I think, so that's your. That's going to be your go-to uh, prof- legal well, case. Is the no? I mean, again, people don't have a right to create a disturbance. Okay. And so, I believe in a very robust uh, free speech component of the First Amendment, but I also believe that government has the ability to enforce reasonable restrictions on speech, particularly speech or expression that either causes a disturbance or is likely to cause a disturbance. And uh, government's right to do that dates back to the Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at, there's all kinds of all kinds of legal thought going back, you know, that far and sometimes even further that says, you know, the king or eventually the government has the right to Yes, people have the right to peacefully assemble and do uh, free, and for freedom of expression, but they don't have a right to cause uh, an unlimited right to cause a disturbance. Right. And you know, fighting words. You know, I, I regularly see disorderly conduct citations. Sometimes that involve a component of, of fighting words um, and other things that tend to cause a disturbance. And the government has a right to regulate. Right. That. But you know, people bring up free speech all the time whenever anybody wants to restrict or regulate speech and it doesn't apply to whether or not if I don't like what uh, a Hollywood entertainer is doing and I try to organize a boycott there is no free speech implication there right you know yes you are trying people are trying to censor you but those are private citizens trying to censor you right and the First Amendment doesn't apply right good stuff well, maybe we should just stop talking on that note then. <laughs> I thought for sure there would be some masterpiece cake shop oh, discussion. I actually, the more I looked at that masterpiece cake, that was a tough one for the Supreme Court. They were super they were, hard. It was because you yeah. think about what the implications could be. I, I thought one of the things I had listened, or I had heard, was would a neo-Nazi could could the neo-Nazi require a swastika from a Jewish baker? Like, yep. You think about that, and you're like, yeah. Uh, Some very challenging issues. What constitutes speech? What constitutes protected speech? Right. What kinds of speech can the government compel? Right. Um, lots of very difficult, challenging legal questions. And fortunately, the Supreme Court decided to pretty much punt, punt on all yeah, of them. Kick, 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 let's <laughs> kick this down the curb. And it was basically they just ruled on, in that particular ruling, they just said, oh, the State of, state of Colorado was just too rough on the... There the, was such a level of bias in the, in okay. the state's proceedings that uh, there, there was a lack of due process. And that's where, you know... And there was almost uniform agreement on that point yeah. f- across both the, the left and right mm-hmm. uh, uh, side of the court. But it really gets to the... I mean, what they're really saying there is... But this if, is this if is I'm sh- a private shop owner, or if I'm a private anything really, <laughs> um, do I have to use my art, artistic skill to do something that I don't believe in? I, I think my gut reaction is, uh, it's your own time, and it's a challenging question because, yeah. uh, you know, on one hand, 
you know, what kind of speech or expression can the government compel? And at the same time, what level of discrimination, if you're going to discriminate right. against protected classes, does the government have the right to regulate that at all too? Right. And I think there are important in interests on both sides of that question. And it's, you know, one of the things, I think this is gonna keep coming up. Yeah. And I look forward to having some guidance from the Supreme Court on what is and isn't acceptable. And hopefully they find a balance that, uh, that makes sense. What would you, just hypothetically, create the case sitting before the, the, the Supreme Court that would be the one that could give you, you know, like make me up a scenario, make me up a story that this is the case. I thought, that, one of the things I thought about Masterpiece Cake Shop was why I was hoping for a decision in that case is I thought there were some good arguments on both sides of the case. Mm -hmm. I, I will say personally, I, I find the idea of saying I'm not going to make a cake for a gay couple to be terrible. Right. Now, whether or not it should be illegal or not is a more challenging question. Yeah. Um, but not every, not every stupid or repugnant thing that people decide to do is against the law right. or violates the Constitution. Right. Right. We've got, we've got a right to be idiots ourselves. You know, like... like you know, you, you, brought, you made the point, you know, uh, you know, would a Jewish baker have to, to make a cake with a swastika on it for a neo-Nazi rally? That that could be a challenging case too, because although, you know, you're with the Nazis, the Nazis aren't a protected class sure. either. Um, you know, or a Palestinian. race, religion, or stupid ideology. Stupid ideology is not yet or here, protected. Or here's like, could a uh, anybody go into an Islamic baker and have them do a cake with the image of Muhammad on it? Right, like, that, right. That would be absolutely against their religion. I thought the facts in, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case were interesting and challenging and would, would have formed a, a good case to kind of address some of these issues. And it, um, I understand why the court decided not to, but I think it, that case really presented a good opportunity mm -hmm. to provide guidance uh, you know, on these important issues, and they didn't. And yeah. As someone who's interested in these issues, I'm disappointed. Right. Yeah, because there's the legal aspect of it, and then there's the greater societal, like, you know that that cake shop get company is getting hate mail. Like, I, I, I wouldn't even imagine how that person's life is, how awful that person's life is right now. And I don't, I don't doubt the sincerity of the cake shop owner's oh, beliefs. Oh, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I, 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 I fundamentally disagree with the decision. Sure. And I... Um, I, I, I find it hard to to understand a you know a decision not to make someone a cake. Yeah. Um, but but it's also the, the the idea of the fruits of my labor too, right? Like right. I'll, but I want to show up and do whatever it is that I do. And there's another cake shop down the road. But you know, could could the same could the same person make a decision? I'm not going to serve a cake for uh, uh, an African American wedding. Right. Right. Another you know another protected class. Right. I, I think everybody would say, no, no. Yeah. You know, challenging legal ideas. Yeah. But uh, important issues. And, you know, and if people are interested in, you know, recent case law on, you know, these important First, First Amendment free speech issues, you know, they should look at the July issue of Wisconsin Lawyer Magazine. If they haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually, it was a really well-written article, I think. Thank you. Um, I... I I will add that uh, 
I did. They ended up uh, picking their own title for the article without running it by me, and I don't really care for the new title. But what was your original? Uh, the constitutional limits of speech regulation. Okay. And they changed it to regulating the limits of speech. Which, how by the I, way, I how ironic that they're limiting speech <laughs> on an article limiting speech. Yeah, yeah. The irony's not lost on me, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Doug, I got to run a kid to a thing. So all I can say is thank you, thank you, and thank you for this dialogue we had about dialogue. It's and, my pleasure. Uh, anytime, Phil. And it is uh, Doug Hofer is a true uh, I local would like hero. I would like to add that I am funnier off microphone when I feel less the constrained yeah. to be appropriate. And the grass skirt isn't kind of, I, you know, drawing you in <laughs> with that. Thank you for it's tuning in. It's tasteful. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in today. And Doug, uh, we look forward to many years as in, in, in municipal law. Thank you. I do too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Dialogue. Well, it's no surprise, you see, that you've heard of